Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Oh, man. This is... You know, last night, uh, since it's a little smaller and more intimate, uh, Saturday night, Larry said people could just shout out whatever they were thankful for, and I, I thought that was the most painful five minutes of my life, but... You guys just topped it, so um, thank you uh, for that. Um, <laughs> uh, I am so thankful um, for this church and for the elders giving me this opportunity. It's not lost on me that um, a five-year break, thanks for that, Larry, um, is not something that all of you get. <laughs> I heard him say it, so um, no, but I, I understand two months off from, from work and a job is not something to take lightly. Stephanie, I are so, so grateful uh, for this church and for that opportunity. Like Larry said, uh, I'm going to be doing some soul care. Um, one of the things that I'm honestly... Uh, uh, kind of vulnerably really excited about is, is a chance to just detach my spirituality from, from production and output a little bit. Uh, you may not know this, but I've been a pastor in some form or fashion since I was 19 um, at different churches, and I've been at Waterstone for 11 years. And so um, it's really easy at times in ministry to, to allow your identity to get caught up in what you're doing for God instead of who you are before God. And I think to some degree, many of us feel that in our vocation, and so I'm very grateful for the chance to maybe step away from that a little bit um, and see who I am before God without writing curriculum or teaching or preaching or those things. Um, Two things that I want to say, though. One, every time I've talked to someone about sabbatical, there's always two questions that people ask. Um, the first is, are you okay? And the second is, are you leaving? Um, and so I just want to take a second to address both of those. One, I am okay. Uh, I'm not taking a sabbatical because I'm burned out or tired or struggling. Um, there's nothing going on that, that really, I, I love what I get to do. Um, I love getting to show up every day and do ministry alongside you. I love teaching and preaching and discipling and and. Uh, pastoral care and all the all the things that I, I'm getting to do. I feel like I'm in a really sweet spot in ministry, and so um, I'm I'm not uh, burned out or tired or any of that. That's not why I'm doing it. Um, the second is uh, the question, are you leaving? And I don't know ever if the tone of that is like hopeful, like please, like would you just go? Or if it's more like, hey, like what's going on? But I I'm not leaving. Um, I uh, love Waterstone. I want to be here. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of such a privilege to be able to pastor and do ministry alongside you. Um, I watched my dad for a number of years uh, who, who wanted to be in ministry and for various life circumstances wasn't able to. Um, and I remember, does anyone remember the movie The Rookie with Dennis Quaid, Disney movie? But great baseball movie. It's this old guy who comes about, old guy, he's like 40 or something. He's not that old. <laughs> Man, I'm, gonna, I'm already stepping on toes. But he, he comes back and he, he gets a chance to go to the major leagues. And, and he's been struggling with this idea of like, am I just wasting my time? Is this what I should be doing? And, and one day he has this change in perspective where he says uh, to his friend Brooks, he comes up to him and he says, hey, you know what we get to do today, Brooks? We get to play baseball. Um, and my dad has told me that throughout the years. Hey, Paul, do you know what you get to do today? You get to do ministry. Don't take that for granted. Um, and so I, I love what I do. I, I hope I get to stay here um, as long as they don't kick me out when I come back. Um, but I'm thankful for this opportunity. All right, enough about that. Let's pray, and then we're going to close the book of Acts today. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, God, as we come uh, to the conclusion of this book um, that we've been in for, for um, since last fall, God, how we are reminded of the stories that we've seen, um, as, as Sarah spoke of earlier, of, of the advancement of the kingdom of God, the movement of the church that continues on with us here today. God, I pray as we close the book of Acts that we would continue that story in our lives and in our community, that it would be an invitation to carry on this movement, um, to proclaim the beautiful name of Jesus to a weary and worn world. God, may we find our place in that story, and it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right. Uh, any readers in the room? Anyone who just loves to read, voracious reader? Yep. Okay. A few of you guys. It's like 25% maybe. Um, so this illustration may not get us off to a great start, but I love to read. Um, and if you're a reader, if you like stories, you're probably familiar with the idea that, that last lines in some ways can make or break uh, the story that you've just been on. You may have loved the story, and if the, if, the, if the author doesn't really stick the landing, it's kind of like a gymnast who did a great routine, and as they're coming off the balance beam, man, they just they, they fall apart, and it, it just doesn't quite resolve the way you're hoping to. So they're really important, and today we're going to look at Luke's last lines. But before we do that, I wanted to share a couple of uh, famous last lines from different stories that I love um, to just kind of get this idea of, of how he wraps things up. So one famous one is from the book 1984, He Loved Big Brother. So sometimes last lines can just kind of leave us haunted, right? I mean, this story about resistance and, and pushing back against oppression just ends on this note where, where the hero of our story has succumbed to the thing that he's been fighting against and he loved Big Brother. And it leaves us haunted Face. Um, and then this one, any millennials in the room who love Harry Potter, uh, perfect ending to a story that leaves us on this hopeful note. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. Just a beautiful way to wrap up this story of hardship and suffering and love that goes on in the Harry Potter series. This one, you may not even be f familiar with the story, but you're probably familiar with these last lines from Charles Dickens. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. You just hear the beauty and the poetry um, in those lines. And then this one, this is a lot of last lines. I, I, it's from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and I couldn't figure out where to cut it off because it's just all so good, so I just kept climbing the page. Um, so it's like multiple last lines. But this is how C.S. Lewis wraps up the Chronicles of Narnia. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's beautiful. It, just, it leaves you on this note of, man, the story is unending. It just continues, and you want to find your place in that story. And in some ways, I think that is the gift that Luke gives us today. So we've been in the book of Acts um, for about 28 weeks. We started way back in September of last year. We took a little break for Christmas and Advent, and then we picked it right back up. Um, and we've walked through 28 chapters, 30 years of church history. We've seen the, the Spirit descend at Pentecost and 
the gospel go out to all nations. We've seen the conversion of Paul. We've seen the, the first Gentile converts. We've seen hardship and things that the church has overcome in its early days as the gospel continues to advance. And now we find Paul on the footsteps of the Roman Empire in the Roman capital before Caesar, ready to go on trial to defend his faith and his life before the emperor. And this is how Luke chooses to end the story. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, when you read those lines, how many of you would say, oh, man, that just, if Luke just sticks the landing. He gets it. He just wraps it up in a perfect bow, nice and neat. Anyone feel that way? Okay, like no one. Yeah, you read this and you're like, wait, what happens to Paul? Like I, we've been told for like the last nine chapters that he's going to Rome and he's going to stand trial before Caesar and, and Jesus is going to get him there so he can proclaim the gospel in Caesar's court and, and we don't get nothing? Like there's no end, like we don't know his fate? I mean, what about Peter and the other apostles? We, we lost them like 12 chapters ago. We don't know what happens to any of these people. Like, like, it's like Luke just got to the end of the piece of parchment and was like, yeah, I guess I'll just kind of like finish it here and they'll figure it out afterwards. Like, it, it just doesn't answer any of the questions we have about what happens to Paul. We feel like we've been building towards this climax of Paul standing before Caesar and saying, you are not the true king. Jesus is king. And we don't get any of that. And yet... I think Luke is doing something very intentionally with the end of the book of Acts. Because what I think Luke is doing is I think he's trying to pull us back a little bit. Because he knows we, we've probably got kind of caught up in the story of who Paul is and what he's doing in his missionary journeys and the way that he's been at work in the world. And, and we may have forgotten that actually the story of Acts is not about Paul or Peter or James or any of the apostles. The, the story of Acts is about the church. And it's about the kingdom of God. And it's as if Luke is pulling us back and doesn't give us an ending to this story because he's trying to remind us that actually this story does not end. It's continuing. It's an invitation to pick up the pen and continue the story in our own lives. That, that, it, that Paul is actually not the central character. It's not about his missionary journeys. It's about the rise of Jesus Christ and the spread of his gospel and his kingdom into every corner of the world. And it's an open invitation for us to find our place within that story. And so what we are going to do today as we wrap up this book of Acts is that we're going to look at the end of the story but recognize that, that the end of the story of Acts is actually the beginning of our own story. That we have a role to play in this story of the advancement of God's kingdom. We carry the torch. We continue to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he has done in the world. And what might our place be? And in order to understand how we can, can join the story, we have to know what our marching orders are. And I think one of the ways that Luke summarizes the end of this book, it, it, it's not just that he lets us know that Paul was waiting trial, it's that he's actually summarizing the story that we've heard from the very beginning of Acts, the proclamation of God's kingdom and that everyone is invited into that new reality. 
And so we're going to look today at those two things. We're going to look at the way that Paul welcomed everyone into this space and that he also continued proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Because as we take up the story of Acts, as we continue that story, I think in many ways that's the heartbeat of the book of Acts, that all are welcomed in the kingdom of Jesus. And when we come into the kingdom of Jesus, we proclaim the good news that he is king. And so we're going to pick up with the, the first verse, and we're only going to be in two verses today, really. In Acts 28, uh, verse 30, it tells us that for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Now, it, it could be easy to just think that Luke is just giving us kind of this idea of what Paul's doing while he's waiting trial, but there's much more going on in this verse than just Paul had a lot of visitors while he was in prison. You see, because it's actually echoing the story that we've seen throughout the book of Acts, that, that as the gospel is proclaimed, Paul continually says that more and more people are invited in to the kingdom of God. In fact, the story begins with, with the people of Jerusalem accepting who Jesus is and the gospel advancing there. And then we see the, the martyr Stephen and the way that the people are spread throughout the world proclaiming the kingdom. But then we see some unexpected things happen in the story. I don't know if you remember the, the Ethiopian eunuch who had been traveling thousands of miles to go to the temple and, and would have been rejected because he was a eunuch. And, and yet Philip, the evangelist, comes to him and says, actually you are invited into the kingdom of God because of who Jesus is. And, and I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be baptized. And we're surprised at the nature of these outsiders who are welcome in. A few pages later, we see the story of Cornelius, a Roman soldier who has visions and dreams about who Jesus, but wants someone to tell him what's going on. And so Peter goes to him, proclaims the good news of who Jesus is. His whole family accepts, and we see the first Gentile converts to this new movement of the kingdom of God. In fact, it makes some of the insiders angry at who is being let in, and, and they accuse Paul of doing so, or Peter of doing something he shouldn't have done. He says, well, what was I supposed to do? The, the spirit descended. They all started prophesying and speaking in tongues. Miracles were happening. Like, it wasn't up to me. God is doing something bigger than this. Or maybe you remember the church in Philippi, where we see Lydia, a wealthy merchant who comes to faith. And Paul and his friend Barnabas, they proclaim the good news, and there's a slave girl who's been demon-possessed, and she's prophesying and telling people uh, their futures, and people are charging, her owners are charging for her to do this. And so Paul frees her from not only demonic oppression, but slavery, and they're angry, so they throw them in prison and they beat them. And in jail, an earthquake takes place, and it shatters the prison cell that they're in. The soldier's about to, to take his own life when Paul says, stop. And he tells them the good news of Jesus. And suddenly you have Lydia, a wealthy merchant, a slave girl, and a soldier in Rome. They all walk into a bar and they become the church in Philippi. <laughs> and all of these people who are outside of the kingdom. In fact, it, it's believed that in that day, that there's maybe some cultural background going on with that story. And that there, there was a, a prayer that Pharisees used to say. That the people who most strongly drew the boundaries about who was in and who was outside the kingdom of God. And they would say this prayer, God, thank you that I am not a woman. And I've never said that prayer, okay? So don't, don't I'm just telling you what they said. God, thank you I'm not a woman, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a Gentile. And we see in the birth of this church, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile come to faith in who Jesus is and it births the church of Philippi that starts with a riot. 
See, throughout the book of Acts, the message has been really clear. All are welcomed in the kingdom of God. There are no qualifications. There there are no stipulations. All that's required is that we call on the name of Jesus Christ and everyone, no matter their race or their ethnicity or their gender or their economic status or their religious background, is welcomed into the kingdom of God because of who Jesus is. And so we see Paul at the end of his days welcoming Jew and Gentile and free and slave and rich and poor and men and women into this rented house in Rome so that they might hear the gospel. He's no longer allowed to go to the nation, so he has invited people from every place and every posture into his home so that they might hear the good news of who Jesus is. Paul welcomed everyone. Now, there are two implications that I think as we walk away from the book of Acts that we should take from this reality that everyone is welcome in the kingdom. Because the first is this, if everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God, then that means you too are invited into the kingdom of God, that I am invited into the kingdom of God. And I think at times we can have this belief that, yeah, the kingdom of God is for everyone, but we sometimes exclude ourselves because of our past or things that we've done or or ways that we've engaged with the world or even things that have happened to us, we think, yeah, I don't know if the invitation is actually open to me. It's as if the invitation from God has just been lost in the mail somewhere and we're not sure if we are actually on the inside, if we actually belong. I want to ask you, who is the God that you pray to? Like in your sin and in your suffering, when you come before God and you confess your sin. Who is the God that you're praying to that hears your prayers? Is it a God that, that, that sees you come before him to pray and, and just rolls his eyes? Oh, man, this, this one again? Really? Is it the God who's exasperated by your struggles? Oh, I feel like we've talked about this over and over and over again. You just keep repeating. Can't you get it right? Is it the God who in your your suffering is distant or absent or feels like he's not present or or not with you in those places? In the spaces of your life where you feel discontent and unsatisfied, is, is the God that you pray to one who simply doesn't care? You see, if we are all invited into the kingdom of God, if we are all invited, if we are all welcomed into the kingdom of God because of who Jesus is, God does not welcome us with crossed arms, reluctant to give us his grace and his mercy. Because of who Jesus is, we are all openly invited to experience life in the kingdom with God. We are all welcome at the table. It's fascinating to me that the the last recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul just comes a few verses earlier than the one we just looked at, and, and the way that he, in some ways, summarizes the gospel and his messages by quoting Isaiah 6 and 9. I want you to listen to the words that Paul says as he's, he's proclaiming to the, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders who are with him about who God is and what he is doing in the world. Paul says, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing and never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. And if they would only turn, I would heal them. See, sometimes I think we have this image of God that, that he's a reluctant saver. He's reluctant to invite us in to the kingdom of God. And what Paul says is that if we would just simply turn, we would find God waiting with open arms to receive us home. The message of the good news of the kingdom is that all are welcome, and that includes you. No matter your background, no matter your past, no matter your future, all are welcomed in the kingdom of God. And if we truly believe that, as Paul did, then the second implication is not just that we have been welcomed into the kingdom of God, but that we are called then to welcome others into the kingdom of God. That the people of God are a people who invite others to understand and know the good news about who Jesus is. That, that we're not closed-fisted with the grace and mercy and love and redemption that we've received, but we too open our arms to the needy and hurting and weary of the world so that they might receive the good news of Jesus as king too. I want you to think about the last time you went somewhere and you felt like you weren't welcome. Like anyone ever felt that before? You just showed up at someone's house and you're like, oh, I feel like I, you do not want me here right now. Like I am a nuisance. I am an inconvenience on you. Uh, there is something going on. And you're, you're trying to be nice. You're telling me that it's not a problem. But all of your like nonverbals are telling me you really do not want me here. Like anyone ever felt that before? Okay, thank you. I was like, hopefully it's not just me. <laughs> like, like, hopefully I'm not just like a burden everywhere I go. But yeah, all the time. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate you. Yeah, we've all felt that at times. And, and what happens, though, when, when you're feeling that space, you're not quite sure if you're welcome, and, and someone takes you from a stranger to a guest and, and just alleviates that pressure and tension, and suddenly you just feel like, oh, I'm home. Like, this is Okay. I mean, just the relief from that anxiety and that pressure, it, it's so life-giving. What if that was the experience people had within the church and the body of Christ? People who come to church or aren't sure if they're even allowed to go to church because of who they are, what they've done, or what their past is, or whatever it may be. Who feel like they're a nuisance or a burden or not allowed into these spaces. What if the church was a place that, oh, you, you're welcome here. You're a guest in this space. What if the weary and worn and exhausted and estranged were just welcomed home because we have received the gift of welcoming? And so we extend that same invitation to the world. You see, I think that is a story that we see continually throughout Acts as people who thought they were a nuisance to God or a burden to God or were not welcome within his circle find that God has actually extended an open invitation to anyone who would receive it. And we see people like Paul and Peter, people who have known what it feels like to be on the outside, proclaiming the truth of what God has done for them to others so that they could be welcomed in. But it doesn't just end this book of Acts on, on the note that, that everyone's welcome and the church should just be more kind and welcoming. But it also ends with verse 31 where it tells us that, that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God. 
and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So he's welcoming anyone who wants to have a conversation with him. They're all welcome at his house. He's putting them up in a rented home while he's in prison, chained to a Roman guard, and says, anyone who wants to hear can hear, but, but you are going to hear the proclamation that Jesus is king. I am going to tell you about the reality of the kingdom of God. And what we see is that, that Luke actually concludes the book of Acts where it began. Because you see in Acts 1-3, it says that Jesus, before he ascended onto his throne, he spent 40 days with the disciples, and it tells us that he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And so Paul is ending the book where Jesus began. He is continuing the story of proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching all people that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it can be easy for us in our kind of comfort of religious freedom to miss what Luke is doing in this moment. Because you have to place yourself where Paul is at this moment when these words are being written. He, he is in the capital of the Roman Empire. He is probably a stone's throw away from Caesar's palace. And to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and King before Caesar is no like trifle matter. If you proclaim in Caesar's court that he is not king and that Jesus is king, there are consequences to those kinds of statements. But again, it's a story that we see actually repeated throughout Acts. Every town Peter and Paul and all of the other disciples go to, they proclaim this good news that Jesus is king and that Caesar is not. In fact, in Acts 17, I love the story where, where they're proclaiming that Jesus is king and people are so angry about this proclamation that the accusation against Paul and his friends is that they are proclaiming that Caesar is not king, that Jesus is king, and they are turning the world upside down. Because the world wants the Caesars. The world wants the status quo. The, the world wants the places of security that empire can bring. And the proclamation that Jesus is king is a direct threat to all the kingdoms of this world. Because if Jesus is king, then Caesar is not. And if Jesus is king, then the presidents and the dictators and the emperors of this world are not. And that carries with it political consequences. See, the title that Jesus is Lord is not just some spiritual title given to him because he is Lord of heaven. There's a proclamation that Jesus' kingdom is invading the kingdoms of this world with the good news that there's a better king, a gentle, loving, kind, all-powerful, almighty king who is coming to set all things right and make all things new. And for the people of this world who like the way things are operating, that is a threat to their power authority. And so... Paul ends his days proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king, turning the world upside down. Proclaiming that captives should be set free, that people who have been possessed shall experience liberation. People who have been stuck in sin can experience forgiveness. The people of this world who have been oppressed and marginalized are welcomed into the kingdom of God. 
So Paul proclaims that Jesus is king. Caesar is not at the very footsteps of the Roman Empire. Proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is. And I love the way that, that Luke kind of wraps it up. And he says that, that he's doing this with all boldness and without hindrance. And you just have to think for a moment. Like, Paul is literally chained to a Roman guard and sitting in house arrest. Like, he cannot leave his home. But the gospel is advancing without hindrance. And he's preaching with all boldness. There's no fear in what Paul is preaching and proclaiming, even though he knows that his gospel message is a direct threat to the powers of this world. He's not afraid. I mean, he's about to be brought before Caesar, who holds his very life in the balance, and he's not changing his message for anyone. What does it take to have that kind of boldness, to proclaim that kind of truth about who Jesus Christ is? And I wonder, Waterstone, where is your boldness today? Do you believe the gospel is advancing without hindrance? Are we willing to proclaim the truth that Jesus is king with all boldness? I know for myself that oftentimes it's a struggle. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, in our Wednesday night class on theology, I was teaching on the Holy Spirit, and I, I shared a story that's very embarrassing to me. Um, and I kind of didn't think about it again because there was like the vulnerability hangover, and I was like, I'm just going to put that away. And then, and then I think like the Spirit reminded me again of it last night, and so I'm going to share it again. But, but there's probably one time in my life where I, I feel like I, I just heard the Spirit so like almost audibly, very tangibly speak to me. And it was in the grocery line at a King's Supers. And I was checking out my groceries, and I was going through the line. And as I was putting everything in my bag, I just felt like I had this impression from the Spirit to ask this woman, this cashier, if she knew Jesus. And I did not have boldness that day. I thought, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> like, there's a line of people. Like, I'm not just going like, to ask her when she's on a break. Like, then she's thinking I'm hitting on her, and she's like, Grandma, that's weird. Like, what? like there's all these reasons that I just, like, could not enter that space. I was afraid. I, I didn't have boldness. And, and I wonder how many times in our life we talk ourselves out of the, the spaces God has called us to boldly proclaim the news that Jesus is king. And I have to, that's an embarrassing story for a pastor to share with his congregation. But, but I do that because, man, like, can it just let some of the air out of the room? Because sometimes we, we come to these passages about you should proclaim, you should tell, you should, and we can be filled with shame and guilt about all the ways we feel like we're not sure we measure up. That, that maybe we're not enough. We don't have what it takes. And so just full disclosure, if the pastor struggles, then it's okay if you do too, I think. Like, I think that's okay to say. Man, what would it look like for us to continue this story of the book of Acts and proclaim with boldness the truth about what Jesus has done in our lives and what he is willing to do in the world? What would it take for us to have boldness to proclaim that message that Jesus is king? I, mean, I think there are often two reasons why we struggle to have boldness, and that's probably oversimplistic. But one of them is, is I think we often don't believe, like I did in King Supers, that, that we have what it takes, that, that we have the right answers, that we have the right words, and, and we're not like strong enough or good enough or have enough to be able to proclaim boldly. And so we kind of like hide ourselves and, and allow ourselves to be hindered by our fear. 
And as I was thinking about that, I, I, I was reminded of one of the greatest movies ever made, Top Gun Maverick. Anyone fans of Top Gun Maverick? All right, I, I'd say Top Gun, the original, is like one of the greatest, it's like top five movies ever made. But, but Top Gun Maverick was like the perfect movie. It was a perfect sequel to follow up. It just hit every note right. And if you haven't seen it, first it made like over a billion dollars. So I'm about to spoil it, and that's your fault because you had plenty of opportunity. <laughs> And then if you still want to know the ending and you're not okay with me spoiling it, then you can just continue not listening like you were probably already doing anyways, okay? But at the end of this movie, it, first of all, it's like the classic boomer, like just like a, a, a perfect boomer dream because none of the young people can do the mission right. And so the old guy has to come back and like he's the only one who can actually do it. And, and so they're on this mission where... where Pete Maverick, Tom Cruise, is leading this mission, and, and it's this impossible mission, and there's this character named Rooster, who's sons of the, the guy Goose from the first movie, and as Rooster is on this mission and selected for it, he doesn't believe he has what it takes, and so he actually begins to fall out of the mission, fall out of the story, because he doesn't think he's a good enough pilot to complete the mission. And so you can actually see the plane separating further and further, and it's putting himself in danger, the mission in danger, everyone else in danger. And then Maverick, he just says, you know, Rooster, come on, kid, you can do it, you can do it, I believe in you. And suddenly there's this moment where Rooster, the encouragement from Maverick, he, he's thinking about everything going on, all the trauma from his past, and he's just able to, he hits the throttle and he re-engages with the mission, and, and all of a sudden the control center is like cheering, it's like, Dagger 2 has re-engaged with the mission, and everyone's like going nuts, and it's amazing. And I think for some of us, we have begun to fall out of the story. We begin to pull back on the mission. We begin to fall behind because we do not think we have what it takes. And the truth is that, that the story is not about us, just like it was not about Paul. Jesus has called us for this moment to preach the good news about who he is, and he has promised that he will equip us for this moment. That we are not on mission alone. We have the Holy Spirit within us so that we can boldly proclaim the good news of who Jesus is to a world in desperate need of that news. The second reason I think we often fall behind in mission is, is that I think sometimes we disengage from the story because we're not sure the story or the mission won't fail. We see what's happening in our culture. We see what's going on in the world. We see dwindling numbers in the church. We see generations walking away from the faith, and we think, I'm not sure if this is worth giving my life to. I'm not sure this is the mission that I want to dedicate my time to. So I'll show up on Sunday. I'll sing the songs. I'll sit through the message. But that's the extent of what I'm willing to give myself to, because I'm not sure the mission is worth it or will succeed. We can be afraid of what it looks like the future that is before us. We can be afraid of the ways that culture is shifting and turning. So we just choose to, to disengage because we're not sure that the mission will actually succeed. But I think part of the reason for that is that we've misunderstood the mission. So I think some of us are, are, are under the misunderstanding that the mission of God is about getting us to heaven when we die. That the mission of God is accepting who Jesus is so that we can just go to some eternal spiritual reality. And, and yet the, the message of the kingdom of God is that the kingdom is in breaking into the world now. 
The, the, the kingdom of God, the church, is not just some like spiritual bomb shelter that protects us from everything going on in human history. That, that actually the kingdom of God is an offensive initiative. That, that Jesus calls us to bring the kingdom, to participate in the movement of the kingdom in the world. And that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the image Jesus gives there is that we are attacking the gates of hell. We're not a fortress that's being attacked by the world. We are on the move. And hell itself will not stand against the proclamation of who Jesus is and what he wants to accomplish in the world. So what do we have to be afraid of? Why wouldn't we give ourselves to that mission knowing the outcome is already won? See, a few years ago, Steffi and I, we were, we were up by Rocky Mountain National Park. And I don't know if you remember, I think it was the year 2013. There was just some massive floods at the end of the summer. And actually, Highway 36 got washed out. Um, and you, you actually couldn't travel that way to go up to, to Rocky Mountain National Park. And so we took the back way through Allen's Park. I think it's Highway 7. We were going up. And, and I saw a chapel on the way there that I'd never seen before. And some of you, if you look at this image, you'll actually probably recognize this little small stone chapel that's just in the middle of this valley. And what had happened that year is the floods were so bad that they had actually washed out everything in that valley. This picture is a few months later. You can still see the debris, but the vegetation has already come back. It just looked like a mudslide had come through this entire valley. And I remember seeing that image, and I've actually returned to that image over the years. Because it it just stood as such a perfect symbol. This small, tiny stone church built on a solid foundation that withstood the floods and the debris and the terror of everything that was going on. I mean, it washed out homes. It washed out communities. And the church still stood. See, that's the picture that Luke leaves us with in the book of Acts. We've seen shipwrecks, we've seen snake bites, we've seen prisons, we've seen beatings, we've seen all sorts of opposition, and yet the church, despite all obstacle, proceeds without hindrance. That is the story that we are called to participate in. That is the story that we are called to continue on. The question is, will we join that never-ending story and find our place from the story of God's kingdom. Take up the pen and see what God could do through this community. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, as we come to a close on the book of Acts, God, we're so grateful for the testimony and the witness we have of, of the stories of the early church, of the ways that they found their story within this unstoppable movement called the kingdom of God. God, I pray and ask that we, the people of Waterstone, would have the courage and the boldness to take our place in that story. God, if any of us are struggling or wondering if we have what it takes, wondering if we are even welcome in that story, God, may we see your grace, your mercy, and your calling upon our lives in new ways. God, if any of us is fearful of the future, may we just take with us the image of your church that withstood all sorts of obstacles and hindrances, and yet, because you are king, the gospel continues to advance. May we believe that 
And from that place, may we live for you and join your story. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.